Hello and welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And let's party like it's episode 99. <laughs> but let's not flake out about it. So yes, thank you for joining us. This is The Film File. I am Lee Ford. And I am Andy Meegan. So welcome to our 100th penultimate episode. We honestly... Oh, that's got to confuse the people who don't know what penultimate means. Well done. Straight out the gate. Confuse people. <laughs> I like to set the bar high, Andy. I'm, I'm never going to talk down to our listener listeners. <laughs> so, Andy, how you been? Episode 99, eh? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm ready for my week off work. I've got four more shifts and then I've got a week off. It's my pre, pre-Christmas recharge. Um which I always need. And luckily for me this year, it's nicely timed that I missed the first two days of Spider-Man coming out. So uh, Yeah, it's going to look like I, it's going to be a busy one, that one. Well, my name is Mud at the cinema as a result. That's <laughs> not Everyone's what I've like, oh, you. we're going to be working. <laughs> um, it, it, it rhymes with something. Um, <laughs> Don't go there. Don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> there might be children listening. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a little chance to just take a breather. I've not got anything planned for going away or anything. It's just a recharge. Um, but a lot of the time over that week, you know, we'll be taking up, taken up with editing because uh, with Christmas coming, we're going to take a two week break after our 100th episode, aren't we? We are. Um, I, I'm looking forward to taking a break and coming back refreshed. Now, um, I've heard other podcasts which do um, sort of similar things to us, replay old episodes. We, I know we've we've never really done it. We've um, we've always kept going, even when we've been ill. I think there's only that one episode I I couldn't jump in for, and you had to speak solely <laughs> to yourself <laughs> for speak to myself. an hour and a half, <laughs> um, like some babbling madman. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to having having the break at Christmas. I really am. It's 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 much earned this year, and yeah. um, uh, it'll be nice to come back refreshed to do do the film file. And, uh, and you know, it's it's always a pleasure doing it. Um, it takes up you know more time for you than it does for me, but um, it still is a there's a lot of thought and and um, and an effort that goes into it, even if we just yeah. hear things uh, during the week, which we think, oh, we'll park that and and, and use it in the show. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to the break. Um, radio listeners are going to get uh, uh, a little treat, but uh, uh, for you, we're not going to leave you. We are going to have some filler episodes. So uh, don't think that we're going away entirely. You'll have other things to do other than just <laughs> listen to the film file. You'll be un- unwrapping presents and uh, playing with the scale electrics. But yeah, the, the, I will be editing together a couple of like taking some old reviews or old deep dives from our archive. But also I'll be recording little extra pieces around it. And once we've both seen Spider-Man, because that comes out when our 100th show airs. So we won't have a chance to see it before we record the next show. Right. So we will drop in to record our thoughts on Spider-Man because we've been so hyped for it. Yeah, and, and um, West Side Story. I just want to add quickly because I'm looking forward to that as well. Yep. And then I'll be, I'll also be doing a review over this past year of films using my letterbox stats. So if you like things like uh, how many films Andy's seen and how many hours I, I waste each year, that's the kind of thing that will be covering. <laughs> but also what my top picks and worst picks for the year were. I'll yeah, well, I've got mine. For films that I've seen. I've got more top picks than I have worst picks. I've seen some stinkers, but that's because I watch so much. Yeah, I've got. <laughs> I think it's easier for me to do my top picks, and uh, um, yeah, I started starting to put together a nice little comprehensive list for that one. So we'll drop it 
that as well. And of course, we're inviting you, dear listeners, to uh, let us know what your topics are for the year for our 100th episode. So get them in quick. You've got uh, you've got a week to do it. And we will feature them on next week's 100th show, a, a show that has been long in the planning, 99 episodes worth. <laughs> and uh, um, and I'll, we had we had some big plans, which unfortunately didn't come to fruition. And uh, slightly the current covid situation has sort of put a bit of a mocker on on some of our plans just to the uncertainty but doesn't mean that we can't do a special somewhere down the line yeah uh, but yeah next week's 100th episode won't have the usual deep dive it will be a look at film in general and love of film including as lee said any suggestions from any of you lovely listeners out there with your five films that you think that everyone should watch that's not just of this year it can be of all time yeah and we, we've already had some great submissions, and a few of them. The, there's one person who submitted some, which I've not seen any of the five on that list, and I feel kind of bad about it. Oh, right. Okay, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that one. So, yeah, get in touch with us here at The Film File. But for this week, what have we got? Well, in this week's show, we have our review of Hawkeye. We're going to be doing a deep dive into the Boondog Saints. Andy has got reviews of... The Power of the Dog, Jane Campion's latest film that landed on Netflix... 8-Bit Christmas, yes, I've gone festive with Sky Movies again, and Untitled Horror Movie, which um, came out earlier this year, but I didn't get round to watching until I was bored the other night and slammed it on. Um, just a quick note that the Boondock Saints Deep Dive is our first requested deep dive from one of our listeners. Fantastic. Uh, Stevie Dan 1969 submitted this one. Um, he's got a lot of love for it, so I hope we don't upset you too much. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a, that was a spoiler. <laughs> Andy, I think that was a spoiler. Spoiler alert. <laughs> he's not going to listen now, is he? He's going to be he's going to be cursing our very names before it actually happens because I think we may have given somewhat of the game away. Or we might not. We might be just uh, it might be a subterfuge. Might yeah, be just that. It's, we like, might it's be... like we've edited that like with the Spider-Man trailer, we've edited out the important bits. Yeah. <laughs> Where you fight Sandman and I'm actually the Green Goblin. <laughs> that that makes sense. That makes utter sense. But before any of that, of course, we have the news. So let's start with uh, box office figures, shall we, Andy, as this has now become the new normal. So we've had a, a pretty quiet week for openings this week. So let's start off with something that I know opened recently, House of Gucci. Did you ever get a chance to see it, Andy? I've not had a chance to see it because it's a long film. And because of the subject matter, it's something that I think that I need to be in the right mood for. Yeah, I'm not drawn. And I've just been working so much that I've just not had the energy for it. Yeah. I've not even had the energy to see Resident Evil. And you know how excited I was about that. But, yeah. And, yeah. And of course, that's going to be in our figures as well today. So uh, let's it's start quite... with House of Gucci. I'm sure we're going to mention Resident Evil and probably Encanto. Well, Encanto held the top spot this week. The family-friendly Disney animation took 12.7 million this second week, making the most of the quieter moments before the triple threat of West Side Story, Spider-Man and The Matrix in weeks to come. The film so far has scored $117 million worldwide, $4 million from the UK, where it was second place this weekend. Set to come to streaming on Disney Plus in a few weeks, it looks like it will be the biggest grossing animated movie of this year. Ghostbusters Afterlife kept second place in the US with 10.4 million, which now means that it's made its 145 million worldwide on a 75 million budget. Looks safe to say that we should see more films in the franchise along the line at this rate. 
Here in the UK, the film sat comfortably in second place and has taken $12 million worth of business so far. House of Gucci followed up in third with 6.8 million, taking its worldwide total to 68 million. And the UK is clearly impressed with the scandal and drama of the Gucci house as it retained first place for the second week and is up to $7.4 million worth of business here alone. Resident Evil sunk to sixth place this week. There was a musical event called Christmas with the Chosen and the Eternals in fourth and fifth place. But Resident Evil has taken $25 million worldwide so far, which just about scrapes its low budget back. But it needs to double that number in order to profit. As the coming weeks are ahead, these films might see a huge drop in business because, like I said, the triple threat is on its way. So that's the box office out of the way. What else do we have? in the news for our dear listeners. So, uh, taking a look ahead to future box office and pre-sales for Spider-Man No Way Home are very strong worldwide. The first day of ticket sales reportedly are the best since Avengers Endgame went on sale. Really? Outstripping films such as Black Widow, Rise of Skywalker, and even even the previous Spidey outing, Far From Home. Early projections have it running for an opening weekend in the US of over $100 million which leads many to suggest that this could be the first billion worldwide film since the pandemic started. I wonder why this has grabbed everyone's attention. I, I've just done, before we uh, before we recorded this show, I've just done some radio uh, where one of the questions came up was, uh, you know, with all the, the Marvel stuff that's been on, plus, and of course, we're talking about Hawkeye in a little while, uh, with all the releases kind of packed together, why this one? in an age where we have been inundated with Marvel product, why this one's shining through. Is it the twist that are we going to get those ex-Spider players coming back? Is it the the trailers are just absolutely landing for people? Mm. I wonder what it is that's, that's making everyone excited. I mean, I think they've done a fantastic job with marketing this film, um, yeah. giving enough hints. And, and you know what they're like for subterfuge. You know, what are we going to see? I think there's, there is that question. Is it going to be the, the best kept secret? Is it going to be the worst kept secret? Or are they just going to completely, completely uh, throw us out, throw a left curve that we just didn't didn't see coming? Yeah, it's it's interesting because there wasn't this much buzz about the other Spider-Man no, films. No, not at all. Buzz, but not to this degree. And they were good performers, but they weren't to this degree. And it, it's got to be the nostalgia factor with them you know, we've got the villains from the previous incarnations. We've got the rumours that the original incarnations are going to pop up. Although, no Nicholas Hammond, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's clearly connected with all the audience, whereas the more recent Spider-Man films might have connected with the MCU and the younger audience. Now you've got the people who maybe were a bit like eh, nonchalant about them. I mean, I, I said at the time that I, I enjoyed the Tom Holland Spider-Man films, but they weren't proper spider-man for me it was, I, it was iron that. man jr whereas now the idea that they might get some of the other spider-men in it's like it's spider-man it's spider-man and it's got me excited this whole the whole spider-verse aspect we saw how popular that was with the um, response critically and from audience responses on the animated into the spider-verse you know people love the idea of breaking the breaking the dimensions down and hopping between them because anything can happen. Yeah, it's a and clever That's move. one of the most exciting things about it is that whilst we've seen various clips and footage, we've not seen the full two and a half hour film and it could do absolutely anything. 
no one knows how it's going to end. It could end with Peter back in the MCU. It could end with Peter stuck in an alternate universe. We don't know whether Doc Ock is going to be a full-on bad guy in this or whether it... Because we saw in the Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 that Doc Ock had kind of redeemed himself by the end. So this sudden, harsher Doc Ock might be a bit misdirection. We don't know. And that's what everyone's loving about it. And that's what's keeping the buzz. Everyone knows the character of Spider-Man and everyone is talking about Spider-Man at the moment. You know what? This is a, this is what um, a build-up to a film should be. Not leaking stories, not fanboys leaking it. Because yeah. you've got to see this early on, I'm afraid, because there's going to be so much leaked out there. I mean, I can't believe, in all honesty, how respectful most people have been about Bond yeah. and, and what's not got leaked and what could have got leaked. Because I saw it, yeah. uh, I remember I was ill and didn't get to see it for a week or so mm. after it opened. And, uh, you know, I, I it, everything that happened in Bond was a, a pleasant surprise. And, uh, and, yeah. and I'm pleased that I didn't know anything. So I think people are going to go and see this early. So nothing does get leaked. But you're right. Their marketing has been absolutely fantastic of, of just letting us know just enough to keep us interested. And it doesn't look like that we are getting to that stage, which everybody's been talking about, where we are, are getting burnt out on superhero movies. And uh, I, I, I thought that might have been one of the reasons that Eternals underperformed. It didn't do yeah. badly, as we know, but it, it's, it's not done as well as expected. And, and it is a better film than, than most reviews have given it. But I, I think part of those poor reviews were that, that people have just gone... Yeah, fourth Marvel movie for the year within a space of three months. Yeah. I don't know. In a way, I think it's also the lack of marketing that's helped this helped Spider-Man. Because if you remember, only a month and a half ago, everyone was like, why has there been no trailer yet? There's no posters out. What's happening? They've left it to the last minute. So everyone's been demanding something all year. And then a month before it comes out, they get what they were wanting. And it keeps it fresh in the memory. If we had, I mean, we saw it way in the past with Amazing Spider-Man 2. That was getting trailered for like nine months before it came out with multiple trailers, loads of TV spots. And people got to the film coming out and basically thought, eh, I've, I think I've already seen the whole movie because it had lost the buzz. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I've just found a, a bit more respect for those Andrew Garfield Spider-Mans. And uh, uh, yeah. I think there's, there's more to like than there is to dislike. And in... And they are problematic in places, and uh, certainly the the origin story is redundant in the first one. But there's a lot more cleverness in those movies than mm. one one would have thought at the time. The way that the script unfolds, and to some extent, they've had that bigger epic quality than the Marvel ones have. And, and especially going back to Spider Man Two, which is an all time favorite, yeah. they do feel epic. Where these have felt much more low key. So maybe this gives it that epic quality, which is which has not been landing for me, uh, and the yeah. grandeur of, of of all those previous five movies. You know, and I'll and I'll take um, Spider Man uh, Three as part of that. You know, for everything that was wrong with it, and there's again so much. It does have a, a an epic quality, uh, and, it, and coincidentally, Amy Pascal has said this is not the last MCU Spider Man movie though Tom Holland hasn't confirmed whether he'll return at this stage. Well, with regards to the future of Spider-Man, there's been various reports and a lot of buzz on it over the past few weeks. Holland hinted that he might not stick around, as we previously reported, but he hadn't made his mind up one way or the other, which given he only has one more contracted appearance for the character, that comes over to me as it's a contract negotiation tactic 
If he yeah. says, oh, I don't know, I might move on, they will, if they want him back, which Amy Pascal clearly wants him back because she said she's got another trilogy in the pipeline and she doesn't see it getting made without Tom Holland. So the ball's in his court to be able to get as much money as he deserves for it. Yeah. Then Holland appeared to be confirmed signing up. Pascal claimed we're getting ready to make the next Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland and Marvel. We're thinking of this as three films. This is not the last of our MCU movies. But a new report has now poured cold water over that with the Hollywood Reporter citing Sony insiders note that note, though, the studio has a strong relationship with Holland and Feige and hopes to continue. There are no official plans for a trilogy at this phase. So I think we all need to calm down and wait for official, i.e. not Amy Pascal news on this because she's clearly very excited about it and wants to get the publicity, but she's not making official statements. She's saying what she feels rather than what's being actually signed for. I suspect we're going to wait until after the new year before we'll get to see what the future of Spider-Man is. They'll wait to see what the numbers actually are over this holiday period to see how much they can throw at another trilogy. And also Holland will hold off to see that because that will raise, if if it does fantastically, that will raise his fee. So keeping his Spider-Man land, I was going to say Spider-Man verse, but that would have given it away too (laughs) me. That would have given it away too easily. The first You're teaser. You're talking about teaser trailers, aren't you? I am. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse reveals its first teaser. It's just landed. And the big news, it's going to be split into two parts. Have you watched it yet? Yes, I have. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the, the title of it being Across the Spider-Verse Part 1 was the instant thing that made me go, ooh. Okay. They've laid out the game. The trailer starts off. You see Gwen appear through a portal um, and Miles being drawn once more into the wild and crazy Spider-Verse. Um, in the trailer, though, what I've loved was we not only got the same kind of art style as the first film, the beautiful CGI, almost comic book approach yeah. with the slightly jittery animation. But then when he goes through a, a sp- into another Spider-Verse, we get a sketchy style of art yes. as he enters that other universe. And that's where we got to see Spider-Man 2099 swoop past. I was like... I mean, I mean, Oscar Isaac is going to um, voice Spider-Man 2099. I'm up for that. And Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman, is also going to be in this film. Yeah. Play, um, voiced by Issa Rae. Can't wait. It, it looks set to play with the art techniques and creativity as much as the first film did. And October 2022 is the date that we need to mark in our diaries for this one. The first film was such a joy. My only regret from the first film is I didn't get to see it at the cinema. Uh, it's while I was uh, in the US shooting the movie. And yep. um, I just didn't get a chance and I was so disappointed. I needed to have seen it on the big screen. But it is, it's a beautiful, it's a work of art and, and deserved yeah. all the plaudits it got. I remember um, we had various customers who would come out and say that there's something wrong with our projector because of the style of art on it. Really? It's like, there's things, that, there's things blurred and out of focus. Like, yeah, it's supposed to be like that. Oh, I think you're playing the 3D version, but it's not in 3D. It's like, no, it's supposed to have that art style. Uh, it's a bit juddery. Yeah, it's supposed to be like that. And, so many that wouldn't believe me. And I, I was just basically ended up going, look, when it comes out on home release, feel free to buy it and watch it again. And if you can prove that it's shown wrong on here, I will pay you back. But at this point in time, <laughs> I'll tell you there's nothing wrong with that film. That's exactly how they were intended it to be presented. Yeah. We get this a lot on various films when creative decisions have been made on something and we can't change the creative decision that was made in the filmmaking process. Well, do you remember it happened with Tenet, didn't it? With uh... Oh, with, with Tenet, it was the sound le- sound levels and the engineering of like, you know, overpowering the voices, which as Nolan has said in many interviews, he doesn't see dialogue as being completely essential if you're telling a good story. And that's why he layers so many other sounds over it. 
But you try telling that to a customer and they just look at you like you're, you're trying to rip them off or something. It's like, no, seriously, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you genuinely what the director wants. I've had someone arguing before now that um, we've removed an end credit scene. And it's like, we didn't because we haven't got the ability to do that. It's like, no, no, no. My mate said there's something at the end. Your mate's pulling your leg. Yeah. <laughs> no time to die, for example. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, please. But yeah, I mean. There's an episode in that. Silly things you hear in a cinema. I'm waiting for the day when this film gets released and we start to get the people complaining that there's something wrong with the projector again. I can't wait. So in other news, Andy? Well, interestingly, while those pre-sales for Spider-Man are pretty good, a study's been commissioned by Quorum Critique and Fanthropology, which has revealed that in the US, out of those polled who used to be regular cinema goers, 49% of them still haven't returned post-pandemic. And 59% of them cite their reasons as not feeling safe in theatres. And 33% seem to support the implementation of COVID passports, which will give them more confidence in returning. I understand that on, on every level, to be perfectly honest. I yep. I feel safe uh, in your cinema because I know of the... And I'm sure it's a, the same for every cinema, but uh, uh, my association is more with, with you and get that vibe that it is uh, it is the best environment that you can put together in its, in its safest capacity. But that also comes down yeah. to uh, your fellow patrons. If your fellow patrons are, are going to wear a mask, because I've started wearing a mask again uh, when I've been in the cinema, if, if they continue to to keep to that code of conduct, then um, I, I could get into a rant. I'm, I'm stopping yeah. myself. But, you know, <laughs> if you don't get vaccinated and you don't wear a mask, then there's going to be ever sort of Damocles hanging over your head that we might go into another lockdown. And the people who don't do it are the ones who are crying, no lockdown for me. But anyway, hamster wheel scenario. 20% of those polled are adamant that COVID passports are an infringement on their human rights. You know, uh, spreading around a contagious disease that can kill people is not infringing on human rights. But, you know, a COVID passport would be. But cost appears to be the primary factor with why people don't go to the cinema. 70% of avid moviegoers and 66% of occasional patrons say that tickets being cheaper would draw them to visit more with 65% also saying that cinema snacks are too expensive, which they've always been expensive. And you don't have to take, you You can take your own snacks as long as you don't yeah. take them in silver foil and, and have a Bunsen burner that's trying to cook. Have a barbecue going. <laughs> as I once encountered in a cinema that you used to work in. That doesn't surprise me. With regards to tickets, it is worth noting that whilst in the UK, pretty much every major chain has a monthly pass scheme. In the US, they aren't as popular. And so when people say that cost will be a factor, they're not talking about the $15.99 per month to watch as much as you want. They're talking about like the $20 per ticket kind of cost that you get in the US. Yeah. And indeed, various attempts to launch such schemes in the US have ended up failing. Don't know why. People want it to be a lower cost, but no one wants to back a pass system. But anyway, that's just a little side bit of interest. Let's get on to the movie news, shall we? Yeah, let's get to the movie news, Andy, because I've got a bit of news, but you go first because this is your deep dive and deep digging into the news. I don't want to take away your glory. So Extraction 2 has begun filming. I enjoyed Extraction. I really did. Yeah, it was a bit of fun. Confirmed by director Sam Hargreave this week. Chris Hemsworth will be returning as the Aussie Black Ops merc Tyler Rake. And the first film was set in hot climates, but the sequel is apparently moving to more colder environments Sheffield. to go for a different oh. approach. Yeah, probably. <laughs> the film is just outside on our estate. Either that or there's just guns going off anyway. <laughs> um... <laughs> 
Joe Russo penned the script and producers alongside Anthony Russo on this one. Did you know it was based on a comic? I didn't know. Yeah. Not until, well, I, I, I did after it came out. I didn't before it came out. Yeah, it's a, it's a comic book adaptation. For a, yeah. Not a particularly well-known comic, but nevertheless, but uh, add it to the list of comic book adaptations that you didn't know were comic book adaptations, yeah. which sounds like a segment that we should do at some point. <laughs> In other sequels for Netflix, Enola Holmes 2 is close to wrapping. Henry Cavill has confirmed that he's completed his scenes. And the sequel to the joyously first film. Um, we'll see Millie Bobby Brown, obviously, back as Enola. Louis Partridge and Helena Bonham Carter will also return. And David Thewlis, Sharon Duncan Brewster and Hannah Dodd join them in this new investigation into the mysteries of Sherlock Holmes. I enjoyed the first one. On Based on your recommendation in particular, I, I thought it was a uh, just a, a, a good, fun family movie. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was smart. It was snappy. Uh, I love the fourth wall breaking being used so well in it uh, to basically have her explaining to the audience like where she's do- where her mind's going and what she's thinking. She's going to be such a massive star, isn't she? She's got her head screwed on as well because she's in, like involved in productions as well now. She's like you know full producer credits on things. She's going to be the, one of the biggest names to come. So can I add my bit of news? Yeah, go on, throw your news in. Okay, did you know that there's this Renfield movie? I know we've talked about it before, directed by Chris McKay. Yes. So uh, they've cast Dracula for the Renfield movie. Yeah. You probably know this. And Nicolas Cage, and now I don't know if this is inspired casting or just sheer <laughs> madness, is going to be playing Dracula in the uh, Universal film Renfield with Nicholas Holt taking the role of uh, Renfield. But they've also added Okawafina has also joined the cast in a in a role that's not been named as of this stage. But um, interesting casting. So I'm assuming that they're going for some sort of dark comedy. I, I know we talked about it during its yeah. inception because it's based on an idea by Robert Kirkman, the creator of Walking Dead. Yeah, the, uh, Robert Kirkman came up from the, with the idea with Ryan Ridley, who works on Rick and Morty, scripting it from that idea. At that point, in case you haven't worked it out, yes, the film is definitely going to go for the dark comedy route. Right. Apparently, it's going to be a modern-day setting, which will explore the toxic relationship between Dracula and Renfield, and also the codependency that exists between them. So they're not playing serious. You can't play serious once you've got Nicolas Cage as Dracula. I mean, man, what is that going to look like? <laughs> that is going to be hilarious. <laughs> I, I don't know whether to be to be horrified <laughs> or uh, find it one of the most inspired casting choices of the year. But just having Chris McKay um, directing it, it kind of should have been the, a big hint as well that this was not going to be a serious take on the source material. This would be something a bit fun. It might surprise us. It might be really dark. It might yep. it might just come be a complete uh, about turn and, and and end up probably one of our, our the darkest films. But somehow I doubt it. Yeah, I, I doubt it with that lineup. Hot property at the moment is an untitled racing project movie that has Joseph Krasinski, Tron Legacy, Top Gun Maverick, and Brad Pitt attached. Jerry Bruckheimer is also on board, as well as Aaron Kruger as screenwriter. And rumours say that um, Lewis Hamilton is also involved in the project. A bidding war has begun between, and get this, MGM, Sony, Paramount, Disney, Netflix, Apple, Amazon, and Universal. Wow, they've got some faith in that project. Now, the faith in this clearly has something to do with the fact that Kaczynski and Brad Pitt were previously attached about a decade ago to a film called Go Like Hell, 
which ended up being Ford versus Ferrari. So it's no shock that given the critical response that that got and the box office response that that film get, that a lot of studios are interested in nabbing this up. Story specifics are under wraps. I'm excited just knowing that those names are involved, knowing what they were capable of in the past. Let's see who picks it up in the end. Hopefully Apple. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know what my feelings on Apple are. Yeah, yeah, they go for the quality. Not always got the, uh, the quantity, but definitely go for the quality. So in other news, Tom Burke is replacing Yaha Abdul-Mateen II in Furiosa. So there's been big changes behind the scenes of the uh, uh, George Miller planned Mad Max spin-off. Yes, uh, Burke, who we saw in Mank last year, has replaced Abdul Mateen II, who was forced to leave the project due to scheduling conflicts on a passion project of his. Burke will join the cast that includes Anya Taylor-Joy as Furiosa and Chris Hemsworth as an untitled character at this point in time. Miller is directing, co-writing and producing alongside Doug Mitchell. And yeah, there's a, there's, is there room for this prequel to Furiosa? Who knows? But I've not been disappointed by any of the Mad Max brand yet. So I'm excited enough just for the fact that Miller is keeping his rights to it and directly involved that this will be something worth speaking of. I was just going to say, I do hope there's another Mad Max uh, movie and I hope they bring back Tom Hardy because he wasn't given an awful lot to do. Yeah. Uh, At least give him some dialogue next time. (laughs) It would be helpful. (laughs) At least for him to mumble through. On the subject of Abdul Mateen, his move for a passion project might be related to the fact that his House 1110 production company has signed a creative partnership deal with Netflix. Okay. And the deal will see the star appear and produce movies for the service, with the company aiming to showcase the talent of traditionally underrepresented and overlooked communities within the industry. No specific projects have been announced just yet, but this might be linked to it. And in addition, at the same time, Halle Berry has also inked a multi-title deal with Netflix after a recent film, Bruised, soared to success with it being critically acclaimed and being the top film broadcast on Netflix in the US this past week and second place worldwide English language. Did you get to see it? I said I saw it. I haven't. I've added it to my watch list to get round to watching. So hopefully by the next episode, I'll be able to bring my thoughts on it. So I see that. Kira Knightley is to star in a new crime thriller, The Boston Strangler, and David Mascallion has, uh, has joined that. He's an actor that's a, an interesting choice uh, and, and had an interesting career rise. Yeah, he's he suddenly come to prominence this year. I mean, particularly with his, uh, his very heartfelt polka dot man in Suicide yes. Squad. Who would have thought he would have had the scene-stealing role as polka dot man? And then him popping up in Dune as well. Yes. Uh, yeah, he's starting to get very prominent and he's starting to become a recognisable name, which uh, I think is long overdue because he is a really good character actor. Uh, conversations are underway for a sequel to Malignant, the James Wan horror that came out earlier this year. Yeah, it didn't, didn't grab me at all. I, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I loved the complete about turn that it took in the last half of the movie. Do you know what it reminded me of without giving anything away? Do you remember a really uh, kind of sordid underground kind of horror movie from the 80s called Basket Case. Yes. It kind of reminded yeah. me of Basket Case. Well, that was what he was cr- he was kind of going for. He wanted to pay homage to that kind of era of filmmaking. Annabelle Wallace has confirmed that talks of a sequel have taken place. There's plenty of ideas swirling around. We were very, very flattered by the reception and I think taken aback by the reception. So yeah, there's lots of conversations happening. It's unknown whether Wan himself will be involved on a sequel, especially given he's currently busy with some small film called Aquaman 2 or something. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he might be able to get out of that one. It's a small budget thing. 
Uh, Steven Soderbergh, Channing Tatum and writer Reed Carolyn are ready to strip things down again for Magic Mike's Last Dance for Warners. Right, okay. I'm going to put my hand up and say I saw the first Magic Mike. Uh, I saw it. I had to review it for uh, when I was still um, a regular presenter on the radio. I was the only male in the audience <laughs> for, for Magic Mike. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it, it had a kind of a nice throwback to sort of 70s kind of B-movie, Z-movie kind of things, but with a with a good cast. And uh, it just had a, it had that sort of Steven Soderbergh throwback for me. And uh, yeah. I, But I was the only male. And I just remember people looking at me going, or women looking at me going, why is he here? Is he a gay man? <laughs> and the answer was no. And I was reviewing it. Um, and that was my story. This third film is going to follow on from Magic Mike and the sequel Double XL. And Chate will return as Mike Lane. Story details are under wraps. The film is planned for a HBO Max release. Whether Joe Manganiello or Matt Bomer will reprise their roles is currently unknown. But Manganiello, to spin off from that, has, however, given up on the idea that he may return as Deathstroke at any time. Yeah, I think the uh, I think the door's closed on that one, which is a shame because he, he kind of looked the part. Yeah, but yeah, the, the doors the doors firmly closed. The the uh, the the key's been taken out of a lock and thrown into a river somewhere. After the character popped up briefly as the DC character at the end of Justice League, there was plans for him to first of all be in the Ben Affleck starring Batman movie, which never happened, and then there was talk of a potential solo outing directed by Gareth Evans, which never happened. Uh, things change frequently within the house of DC, as we know. Matt Reeves' as Batman t- has taken a completely different road, and the Snyderverse is pretty much gasped its last breath now. The remaining characters are being used in more standalone films. You wouldn't think so if you go on Twitter. I don't know. It's calmed down a bit on there recently. I, I, I think a lot of the, um, the Snyder fans out there have calmed down and realised it's never happening. Asked whether he held out hope for a return, the star said bluntly, no, I've let that go a while ago. So he's known for quite a while that nothing's going to come of the Snyderverse. Part of me thinks it's a shame because, like you said, he could have been great. He could have been a great representation of that character. But part of me feels that this is the last nail in the Snyderverse coffin that was needed. Uh, just on, just quickly on uh, DC News, I don't know if your next story is, but uh, production's begun on... On the, Batgirl. On Batgirl. <laughs> you were going to say that, weren't you? <laughs> I was, yes. I'll let you go for it because you're going to say much more eloquently than I ever could. And sticking with DC, so Batgirl has officially started production. Oh, I just said the that. Movie, <laughs> the movie, which stars Leslie Grace as Barbara Gordon and J.K. Simmons as Commissioner Gordon, uh, will also star Brendan Fraser, who, yeah, his return to screen is going to be great, um, as a villain. Firefly, and filmmaker Adil El Arbi co-directs alongside Bill Alfala. Not much is known about how it's going to go, but now that it's started production, expect some shots from set and some production stills. So from what I know of this, this is for HBO Max, is it? It's not for yes. a cinema release. I, I don't quite get why it's not a cinema release and it's just a HBO Max TV movie, for want of a better better term. I know it won't be just I... a TV movie. It'll have production values galore. Yeah. But I, I'm just wondering why they made that choice with it. Is they, they don't have faith in female-led characters? I, I think it's a lot more to do with they need to make sure that they have some exclusives for that streaming channel to convince people to stick around and you have to tap into that dc market they saw it with um well we mentioned it before Zack snyder's justice league brought them some subscribers yeah who then left afterwards but if they can continue to have exclusive dc content on there they hope to keep that comic book audience signing up here's here's one that baffled me oh i'm ready to be baffled filming on the robbie williams biopic better man 
will start in early 2022. What? Wait, Robbie Williams? Yes, Robbie Williams. According to reports, this curious project, which is directed by Michael Gracie, who gave us The Greatest Showman, will see the entertainer portrayed by a CGI monkey. <laughs> the look on your face says it all, though. <laughs> I'm just mulling all of that information on. I need a stiff drink after that one. What? Yeah. Uh, reports are saying that he's got, the, the character is going to be play, portrayed by a CGI monkey. Robbie Williams apparently will also appear in this film as himself. And the film is going to be an introspective look at the experiences that shaped Williams on and off stage using recontextualized songs from his back catalogue to tell the story. This sounds bizarre. Firstly, why? Secondly, <laughs> does the world need that? I mean, no disrespect to, to the guy. I, I think he's a great entertainer. I think he's, yeah. for a long time, he was, he, he was the, a, a proper pop star in the way that he was a bit naughty. It was a bit ooh. I, and I like that. I think, you know, pop's got far too clean cut. Uh, for its own yeah. good, it should always have an edge to it, and he did that. And I thought he his first couple of albums were very memorable. I, I think that didn't last, but um, I've, I have some time for the fella, or, or did have. But I see no reason on God's green earth why that should exist. And does anybody <laughs> care? Ultimately, it's not like he's still selling out stadiums, or is he? And perhaps I just don't know. I, I, I find it the most that's the most bizarre news I've heard. In a long time. I mean, I'm I'm more interested in watching it now just to see him played by a monkey. <laughs> what, what, why? <laughs> the mind boggles. Someone's come up with this as a clear, clever idea, but it's probably come from the mind of Robbie Williams himself. To yeah, yeah. Do you want to be in this movie? No, I'd rather be in this movie if it was uh, portrayed by a, a CGI monkey. It's done. <laughs> done deal. We don't have to pay the monkey anything. Uh, Stan Lee didn't just give us vibrant and colourful superhero characters, but those of us in the know know that he also tapped into a horror a few times through his career. Did he know? I did not know this. He did. He did some short little comic horror stories. Now, Timur Bekmambetov, who gave us Nightwatch, Wanted, Profile, etc., is adapting these untapped projects under his Basilev's production banner. Okay. Two projects are planned so far. Sawbones, which sees a frail 12-year-old named Alex who reads a, reads a comic and is transported into the comic's terrifying world, a haunted detention centre which is plagued with demons. Oh, good, good, good premise. Well, this is one thing that Stanley was great at, is like good, simple premises. That, yeah, it's very familiar. You've probably heard something similar before, but yeah, it's a Tales from the Crypt kind of approach. Mm. Then there's Carnival of Killers which was set in the 1930s, and a girl with psychic abilities senses that the circus that she travels with is about to be hit by an alien invasion. Okay, that, that was that threw me at the end. <laughs> yep. I was just about to say, this sounds like something wicked this way comes, which I, I was super excited for. <laughs> well, it, hey, you know, it, it is, but just with I'm alien invasions. I'm not writing it off yet seen it. That's my man. Kevin Kolsch, who gave us Starry Eyes, and Dennis Wilderman, um, who gave us Screen the Series, are penning Carnival Killers. And Matt Greenberg, who gave us 1408, is penning Sawbones. So okay. these are ones that I'm keeping my eye on to see whether, you know, tapping into other Stanley properties could benefit. Quickly, I've just got one little piece of news that I just want to drop in before you wrap this whole segment up. Uh, Succession's uh, Sarah Snook uh, is replacing Elizabeth Moss in a new thriller, Run, Rabbit, Run. I don't know much else about it. I've not watched Succession. I'm not, not caught up in it. And I've heard so no. many fantastic things. It, it doesn't quite appeal. But if she's good enough to replace Elizabeth Moss, Elizabeth then Moss. 
we assume that she is uh, is, a, is an up-and-coming great talent. Yeah. Anna Diarmas and Chris Evans are going to pair up in the Apple original film and Skydance feature, Ghosted. A romantic action-adventure film will see Armas step into the role that Scarlett Johansson was previously attached to after a scheduling conflict has led to Johansson having to depart. And this is the um, the film that Dexter Fletcher is going to direct okay. from a script by Rhett Reese and Paul Vernick, uh, who gave us Deadpool. Met Dexter Fletcher some years back, years, years back. Um, uh, just uh, just musing, actually, while you were saying that. I, I was just thinking about that Scarlett Johansson producing that sequel Marvel project, which we still yeah. don't know. It's still a secret. Um, yep. So that's interesting. So I'm, I'm wondering whether that's part of the scheduling yeah. conflict on this one. There's a lot of scheduling conflicts going on this week. And finally... Now, this got me excited. Only Murders in the Building Season 2 yeah. has now cast an additional member of the cast. Cara Delevingne is going to play a character called Alice, who's an art world insider who becomes embroiled in the mystery of the second season. Such I can't wait series. for Only Murders Season 2. Such a great it's, series. It's a great watch, and it's a great rewatch as well. I've started watching them oh, really? again. It it stands up to like scrutiny when you go back and rewatch it. Not quite finished it yet. Just did the episode, which was the silent episode. Oh, how creative that was that? so clever. But need to get it yeah. finished. Got so much to get finished. Uh, one of my neat <laughs> things is the new thing I've started without finishing other <laughs> series yet. I mean, isn't that the way? It is. And that is the news. Still with us, still listening to The Film File, there's much more to come as we go into our deep dive. But if you're just a friend of the show, rather than part of the family, head over to your favourite podcast platform, Hunt down the film file and subscribe where you can get additional bonus episodes. And Christmas is only around the corner, so who knows what will be in your stocking this year. Remember to like the show. Remember to tell your friends all about it. And if you want to know more about the film file, you can do so by doing just simply this. Head over to Twitter. Follow us at Filmfile UK. Head over to Instagram, Facebook and TikTok. Search for Filmfile UK. There you go. Uh, you can email us thoughts, suggestions, requests for deep dives that you want us to look at through 2022. We're taking all suggestions seriously and also lists of your favourite films of all time or just five films that you think everyone should watch. Fire them over to us, podcast at filmfile.uk. And now it's time for this week's deep dive, which is a request from our dear listener, Stevie Dan, 1969. Thanks, Stevie Dan. And we really had to go back through the archives for this one as we talk about the cult 1999 American vigilante action thriller written and directed by Troy Duffy, The Boondog Saints. On the streets of Boston. This was no gangland assassination. It was way too sloppy. Something went wrong here. An FBI agent is on a case. All the low lowlifes in the quiet city of Boston start dropping dead, and you think it's unrelated. They're all bad guys. Now they're all dead bad guys. The victims are the mob. What we have here, gentlemen, is the beginning of the first international mob war. And the hitmen think they're on a mission. From God... Anybody you think is evil? Don't you think that's a little weird, a little psycho? Sort of like 7-Eleven. We're not always doing business, but we're always open. That is nice and positive. The film came out in 1999 and starred 
Sean Patrick Flannery and Norman Reedus, he of Walking Dead fame, as twin brothers Connor and Murphy McManus, who become vigilantes after killing two members of the Russian Mafia in self-defense. After both experience an epiphany, the twins, together with their friend, Funny Man, played by David Delta Rocco, set out to rid their home city of Boston of crime and evil, all the while being pursued by FBI special agent, played by Willem Dafoe. This has cult film written all over it and came out at the time when there were so many Quentin Tarantino-inspired-esque movies. In fact, it became a thing. This had one of those, shall we say, troubled productions. Miramax Films dropped the project in 1997 before Franchise Pictures picked it up the following year. The film was given a limited theatrical release in only five theatres for one week due to movie studio politics and worries about associations with the 1999 Columbine uh, school massacre. It was met with poor critical reviews. However, the film ended up grossing about 50 million in domestic video sales and developed a huge cult following that was followed by the sequel, Boondog Saints 2, All Saints Day, and there was a third one on its way. The story behind the film was worthy of a documentary, but Andy's revisited it. Andy, is this the first time you've seen Boondog Saints? Is it is it new to you, or, or did you do a bit of a catch-up like I did? It's It was completely new to me. I was aware of Boondog Saints because I've heard it mentioned so many times, and there's various members of my friend's circle who've were quite disgusted that I've not seen it. They were like, oh man, you should watch this, you should watch this. So it kind of been built up significantly in my head, even though I'd read elsewhere that it wasn't a good film. So I approached it with trepidation. And, you know, Stevie Dan asked us to look at it. So I look, look at it and I did. And what I found was very much the cult film that I was expecting. It's somewhat cheap looking. It's yeah. almost a TV drama-esque yeah. approach, Tick. albeit with some occasional visual stylings that really do pay off. The screenplay is choppy. There's jumps in time within the storytelling that make it feel completely under underdeveloped. And I could probably write a better script myself with my eyes closed, my fingers chopped off, and some broken crayons. And it does make me wonder how many crayons were consumed making this script. But despite the failings of the film, and there's a lot of failings of this film, there was something in there enough to make me have enough fun that I do want to seek out the second film now. Okay. It's not a great film by any stretch of the imagination, but I think I was just in the right mood when I finally watched it to latch on to the culty nature of it. It's one of those, it's one of those films that you can enjoy how bad it is whilst acknowledging how bad it is. I agree partly with what you're saying. So just a little bit of, of history on it. So Troy Duffy's screenplay was inspired by his disgust of seeing a, a drug dealer taking money from a corpse across the uh, the hall from his apartment. Uh, Duffy, who was working as a bartender and a bouncer, had, and you can tell, never written a screenplay before, let alone directed a movie. So he completed the screenplay in 1996 and passed it to a producer assistant at uh, New Line Cinema that was read by senior executives. The screenplay changed hands through multiple studios. And, and this is kind of in the wake of that kind of Tarantino craze where um, they were looking for new and inspired voices. Now, there were some of the Tarantino craze, which I, I think were, were particularly fantastic films that kind of got heaped in with it. 
things to do in Denver when you're dead, for instance, is, is yeah. one of my all time favorites. I think it, it surpasses that that Tarantino quote, even things like lock, stock and two smoking barrels. So there was an eager need to uh, to make these kinds of film, these sort of new voices, uh, so much so that, that Miramax jumped into it and it landed on the desk of the notorious Weinstein brothers. And the film was originally given a $15 million budget with Duffy's band, The Brood, intended to, to uh, do the soundtrack. But Miramax offered to buy and throw a co-ownership of it. And ultimately, it didn't work out. So much so that there was a, a documentary called Overnight, which was chronicling Duffy's rise to fame, but frequently showed him exhibiting, shall we say, abrasive behavior that caused tension for many people involved in the project, including on the set, that is as much a part of the mythology of Boondock Saints as the film itself. So much so that I saw Overnight first and then saw Boondock Saints and went into the movie hating it because I hated Troy Duffy so much yeah. throughout that, that that particular documentary. It's a great documentary. And, and you know, uh, talk about... Um, uh, what should have been uh, the uh, uh, rise to fame is actually about the rise and fall to fame and and did did the film absolutely no favours whatsoever. Yeah, it's a documentary that I want to track down and watch because I have heard that, you know, you go in expecting it to be a rags to riches kind of tale, but you actually discover that Duffy wasn't corrupted by wealth and power. He was always a dick, a self-absorbed yes. narcissist. And you put it much more eloquently than I did again. But, you know, you've got to give you've got to give credit to someone who didn't shy away from standing up to Harvey Weinstein, um, especially yeah. in light of the recent revelations. You know, this is someone who saw Weinstein for the for the manipulator that he was. It's just a shame that Duffy himself was a manipulator. With the film itself, there's some occasional moments of brilliance, like I said. The mobs to shoot out with the lads hung upside down is a beautifully shot moment. It's like, it's, it's funny, but it's also stylistically presented. The cast are bizarre stereotypes. Some feel like they hinder things. I didn't get the funny man. I didn't get David Della Rocco's no. funny man at I all. Thought it was I thought he was pointless. But there's others that chew the scenery so much, you can't help but lap it up. None more so than Willem Dafoe, who was clearly relishing every moment, right down to him dressing as a woman and writhing on the floor saying, give it to mama, give it to mama. There's some things you just can't unsee. <laughs> But the two leads play well together. And had they not been so hindered by some of the most strained dialogue that has ever been written, they could have been great. It's interesting seeing Reedus, who's now more notable for Walking Dead role, playing a wisecracking Irish rogue. And if that, that was a strange, like, when he started, I was like, that is Norman Reedus, isn't it? That's, he's, isn't he so young? <laughs> um, like you say, it's got a post-Tarantino-esque feel to it. It felt to me like films such as Killing Zoe, which try to tap into that Tarantino like switching yeah. timeframes nature, but don't quite get it or don't quite get the gangland cool. It's cheap, it's messy, and it's downright offensive at times. Yeah. The toxic masculinity, the macho posturing, the homophobic aspects, there's a lot that you can really find disgusting in this film. But there was something, like I say, I might have just been in the right frame of mind. There was something that I found kind of compelling enough that the good just about outweighed the bad. It's not a great film. This is one of those films that while I was watching it and enjoying bits and pieces of it, I knew I was watching trash, but I was enjoying watching trash. It's trash that has delusions of grandeur written across it. But for me, plays out as a series of basically violent vignettes, set pieces, 
strung together by uh, the most bare essentials of a plot <laughs> uh, and, and semblances of, of any sort of narrative flow to it. Uh, I, I liked um, both both the leads, uh, and I can see why Norman Reedus went on to, to bigger things. It's a shame, actually, because, uh, and he was great as the young Indiana Jones, but Sean, Sean Patrick Flannery d- hasn't had the yeah. career that, that he deserved because I thought he had a, 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 an amazing screen charm. And, and he comes out of this as, as being an, a good screen charmer. But it's also, it's just such a mess of a film. I, I mean, I know Troy had delusions of grandeur. He wanted people like Ewan McGregor in it. And he wanted people like Patrick Swayze. And he wanted Kevin Spacey or De Niro to be in it. And, and you know, and, and thankful that he got Willem Dafoe. But because it's just, it's just a, a mess of a film. The guy cannot write. Uh, a film script and how he got the good set pieces out of it is is a miracle because everything else feels so utter amateurish and it's just it was just at the tail end of kind of what the tarantino shall we say hipster crime movie wave that it, it already feels outdated that that moment had passed and there'd been other much better hipper uh, uh tarantino-esque movies like some of the ones i i i mentioned but um I can also understand why it had a cult following and it had all the right elements to give it that underdog cult following. And, and so much so that the, the, there was a sequel, there was a, a couple of comics, there was going to be a TV series, a bit like Buckaroo Banzai, that, that it lived on in, in, the, in the mind of fans rather than the minds of audiences. And apparently so there's going to be a, a third movie. But Will I be there for that? No, sadly not. I wasn't even there for the first sequel. It's just, it ticks all the right boxes for cultdom as opposed to being, this is a good movie. It gained its reputation after Blockbuster bought it for a Blockbuster exclusive on the home market. The eventual DVD sales was a bestseller and the sequel to All Saints Day in 2009 came out as a result of that word of mouth. It was It's one of those films that you watch it and then you'd say to your mates, oh man, have you seen this? And when they go, no, you go, oh, you have to see it for either good or bad reasons. And that's how it built up a following. Yeah, it's you, you get a pizza in and you get a couple of beers in and you watch it that way. Yeah, it's, it's a lad's film that you sit and laugh and enjoy together knowing that what you're watching isn't art of any kind. It's just disposable trash. But yeah, I mean, Stevie Dan, I clearly enjoyed it a lot more than um, Lee did. Um, I didn't enjoy it. I I don't think it's anywhere near a four-star film, let alone a five-star film. But it's enough to make me want to see the sequel. And I will be tracking down Boondock Saints 2 to give that a check and see whether um, the the storytelling gets a bit better on the second one. I was was most interested knowing that the sequel kept the original cast. Yes. And even this new one that is planned to film next year is the original cast again. So... I've got respect for them that they're keeping it as that and not just doing some baseless spin-offs. Okay, and that's this week's deep dive. If you have a deep dive for us, let us know. We'd be interested in seeing movies or revisiting movies that we've not seen in an awful long time. Or it might be something that's super, super popular. So drop us a line. So it's now time for this week's reviews. And we're going to do it in, as Andy has seen so much and I have seen so little, the good, the bad, Not quite the ugly, but the more the kind of, um, Andy, 
What's this week's reviews? What are you going to kick off with first? And now I know actually what you're going to kick off with. It's a new Jane Campion film that stars Benedict Cumberbatch. The power of the dog. Open up the gate. Let him out. You sure he's not ready? Go on, let him out. It's just a man, Peter. Only another man. <laughs> man was made by patience and the odds against him for what kind of man would i be if i did not help my mother Peter! if i did not save her so the power of the dog a western drama written and directed by jane campion the power of the dog is set in the early 20th century and focuses on two wealthy ranch owners brothers phil played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and George, played by Jesse Plemons. And the impact on the pair when George falls for a widow named Rose, played by Kirsten Dunst, and marries her, moving her and her son, Peter, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, to the ranch. Phil is sceptical of Rose, thinking she's just after the money, and as a hardened man also finds disgust at the effeminate ways of Peter. Tensions mount in the ranch as Phil takes opportunities to intimidate and humiliate Rose and Peter, driving the woman to drink. Cumberbatch, who usually plays affable characters or the put-upon, downtrodden and gentle souls, here appears to be relishing the chance to play a much harder, rougher, nastier-edged character. Indeed, the character of Phil is completely unpleasant in Manners and Graces, his never-washing being mentioned at a few points during the film. An easy character to hate, it makes the back end of the film even more interesting as other layers of the character are peeled away. Plemons is as on strong form as ever, as the good-natured George, who always wants to see the best in everyone and struggles to stand up to his more dominant brother. Dunst, as Rose, sells the unease with which she joins the homestead well, but it is in Smith McPhee that the film's revelations hang. His weak and effeminate Peter, a joke to the ranchers, pushes to be accepted amongst them, and you root for him whilst worrying constantly for his safety, concerned that Phil's threats are not empty. The character study plays out in an unhurried fashion, letting the subtle jealousies and the resentment bubble away under the surface until even a minor phrase can seem like a threat. Campion and cinematographer Ari Wegner don't waste any shots and present a beautiful-looking western. It's complemented by a score from Johnny Greenwood, which evokes the era and the rising tensions in the household perfectly. And this is another solid entry into the work of Campion. So I've heard good things about this. It is on my list. The only issue I have is a kind of a love-hate relationship with Jane Campion. Now, I know she's highly, highly regarded as a filmmaker. When she lands for me, I think she's she's incredible, but she doesn't always land for me. And sometimes I feel a little bit, I don't know, alienated in the world that she's created. But this sounds interesting, uh, and the performance alone of Benedict Cumberbatch, and, and the amazing cast, uh, Jesse Plemons, is always an in for me with, with whatever he does. Even Jungle Cruise, he was yeah. almost the best thing in it after Emily Blunt. And so that's the good, the bad, dare I ask? So a film that came out earlier this year that I finally caught up with, and that's Untitled Horror Movie, which is available on Amazon. She obviously got carried away. I mean, if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be a bunch of actors. Well, I didn't get carried away. We all know I'm not that good. Whoa, what was that? What was that? I think somebody's in my room. I'm going to look. No, 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 I trained for this. Oh, God, no. No, no, just because you played a ninja on TV. What could she possibly do with Why that? Do you have a samurai. Some guys said I was good enough to be a professional. No. He had to say that. They to were you. being nice. 
found footage Zoom style horror comedy filmed during the pandemic in which a bunch of actors who find their show is being cancelled decide to make their own horror movie using mobile devices. As interest builds on the project and they start to film, things start to get a little strange after a seance scene is shot. And slowly, it appears that something is stalking them. But are they just pranking each other? Is it all a part of the script? What is real and what is just five acting divas hogging the attention? Concept-wise, we have seen a fair few of these lockdown-made films or shows. And whilst this one doesn't set itself within a lockdown situation, it does, however, suffer from being obviously restricted in what they could and couldn't do. Better films using the concept have been made, such as The Very Excellent Host last year. And this film pales in comparison to that film, both on a story level, fright level and effect level. But maybe that's the point. Because as a comedy of some B-list actors desperately trying to outdo each other, it's possible to see this whole film as a bunch of pranks and not a supernatural film at all. So it feels a bit cheap at times, and the characters actually point out how some of the spooky happenings could have been staged, which kind of works. But it's impossible to really care for anyone in this film, as they all come across as self-centred and inherently unlikable people. And as a result, I didn't feel invested in the tale enough to care. Thankfully, the short runtime stopped it being a drag, and there were a few standout moments that amused, but in the end, it's a film that you can appreciate the limited creativity of, and even admire the manner in which it was made during lockdown, but will simply forget about and dismiss into a pile of other similarly made films that have plagued us since the COVID outbreak first hit. Yeah, and if you're going to do a lockdown movie, if you, it's the same with found footage. If you're going to do a lockdown movie, explore lockdown. In the same way that with found footage, explore something different within found footage. That's when it gets frustrating for me. The idea of doing found footage just became a thing as opposed to doing anything that gave it any resonance. Same for lockdown movies. Um, I, I think I'm based on that review, Andy. I don't think I'll be going there. And finally then, you're meh. It's, it's not quite a meh. It's, I did have a lot of fun with it, and I probably will revisit this every Christmas. And that's 8-Bit Christmas, which landed on Sky. I am not a big fan, in advance of your review, of the Netflix Christmas movies. Um, I, I was won over by Christmas Chronicles. Though at first I, I thought they were just a bit too goofy. But it was the charm of, of Kurt Russell and, and then Goldie Hawn. That, that made it work for me. Every kid has that one gift they want more than anything for Christmas. This is the story of mine. Bookends? They have baseballs on them. I see that. No, not those. Nintendo. A maze of rubber wiring and electronic intelligence so advanced it was deemed not a video game, but an 8-bit entertainment system. No Nintendo in my house. I second that. Looks like a no-go on Nintendo. I needed a Christmas miracle. Festive film ahoy. And after speaking of my usual dismissal of such nonsense last week when I reviewed The Surprisingly Good Boy Called Christmas, it was with a heavy roll of the eyes that I initially reacted when this film landed on Sky over the past week. However, the setup tapped into my gaming nostalgia. It's a tale of a boy's desperate plight to get a Nintendo in the 80s. And so I thought I'd give it a shot and see how angry it could make me. I really do need to sort out my internal issues with Christmas films. I blame Elf and Homer away for my hate. Oh, and love, actually. Again, adopting a Princess Bride approach. Is this the new festive shtick? We start with Neil Patrick Harris as Jake Doyle. 
taking his mobile phone obsessed daughter, Annie, to have a festive time with his parents. When they get there, he introduces her to his old Nintendo and begins telling her the tale about how he got that system. The film flashes back as we see young Jake met with obstacle after obstacle as he tries to become the cool kid with the console on the lead up to Christmas. The tale takes in bullies, fundraisers and a desperately planned out scheme to land the much treasured home entertainment system. With the film occasionally breaking back to the present, the presentation is fun and well paced, even if there is certainly a strong sense of having seen it all before. Suffice to say, the initial hook of love of a childhood toy paid off and it made the film relatable. We've all got memories of that toy we wanted for Christmas so badly. And in this case, I could directly relate given my love of gaming through my own childhood. The young cast have a good Stranger Things vibe to them and gel well on screen. And the adult cast more than make up for any minor shortcomings. Neil Patrick Harris is as engaging as ever. And in the flashbacks, June Diane Raphael as Jake's mother and Steve Zahn as his father really ground the whole thing well. A small part played by David Cross provides some great laughs. And throughout the film, I found a fair few belly laugh moments as the tale played out. I'm certainly feeling a lot more festive as the weeks go on. And I'm being pleasantly surprised by two Christmas films now over the past two weeks. 8-Bit Christmas doesn't get a game over from me, but I will be pressing start to continue on it with a future revisit in a future festive time. Okay, maybe then. Maybe you've talked me into it. Andy, what's coming out this next week? Oh, yes, we might have mentioned this little Spider-Man movie, which is gaining some attention. Yes, by the time we release the next episode, Spider-Man will have already been released. Also, Being the Ricardos gets a limited cinema release on some independent cinemas before it goes to Amazon. Clifford the Big Red Dog, the film of the year, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I know you're looking so looking forward to that, aren't you? And Spielberg, I will be talking about Clifford next week. Trust me. And West Side Story Can't wait. will be out this weekend. Over on streaming, another round lands on Now TV this coming week. Well worth checking out. On Netflix, there's The Unforgivable, which is a Sandra Bullock film. She's released from prison after serving her sentence, but finds it difficult to be accepted back into society. Looks interesting. Anonymously Yours and The Hand of God also land this week. Over on Amazon, Wrath of Man, Guy Ritchie and Jason Statham's latest action thriller lands. And Encounter, a sci-fi with Riz Ahmed on a rescue mission to save his sons, also lands. I've heard good things about that. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And over on Disney+, Plus, Ron's Gone Wrong will be arriving in just over a week's time. That was a delightful little film. I've not had a chance to see Ron's Gone Wrong, and I'm quite looking forward to it. Oh, you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy that. You really would. So uh, that's the upcoming films. Let's have a quick look at this week's episode of Hawkeye. The person that wore this suit... Made a whole lot of enemies. Since when did your heart shrink three sizes? When a little girl in ninja costume stole my Christmas. What's going on? Should we be worried? Holy There are arrows more dangerous than that one? That was amazing! It's gonna stick around a little bit longer. Promised. I promised Lila I'd be there for Christmas. So the story continues. Clint Barton and Kate Bishop's festive New York City adventure continues uh, with Wednesday's release of episode three of Hawkeye uh, and that hit on, of course, Disney+. 
The Marvel Cinematic Universe series is uh, the fifth to hit Disney streaming service this year. This year, that makes us, what, nearly <laughs> 30 hours worth of Marvel this year? Yeah. And it reveals uh, a much more down-to-earth Marvel adventure than what we've seen before, which faces the consequences of the criminal underworld after Clint abandoned his Hawkeye mantle to go on a bloody quest for justice as Ronin that we saw in Avengers Endgame. So, so far, it's got a, a big Shane Black vibe going on for me. It's a lot of fun. I've heard it called silly, which, okay, I can quite get silly. But boy, is every episode, is it just me? Is it just a joy? It has a 70s throwback feel to it. Uh, and it's always inventive because of the charm of the two lead players who just play off each other yeah. so, so well. Uh, some nice surprises. The, uh, the introduction of Echo, yep. who is a, a character we saw originally in Daredevil, who has photographic reflexes, and we saw her bring that in. We have got the imminent arrival of uh, the new Black Widow. Yeah. And uh, I'm just having a great time with it. And some great Easter eggs in this episode. A really good dynamic is building between Clint and Kate in this episode. This is where they really gelled for me as like that... That, like you say, it's the it's the buddy cop kind of um, aspect that they've got as mentor and pupil when the pupil's actually a better archer than what Clint Barton is. Um, it's it's great the 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 zap with which the lines of delivery between the two of them play pay off is just joyous to watch. I could just watch them. I could watch them sat around a table talking to each other for an hour yeah. and a half and still be enthralled. However, this week we got some great action. We've the got car some stunning chase action. is what you're going to talk about, isn't it? The car chase in particular. I mean, we already had like the breakout of the the hostage situation at the start of it, which was well played and well placed. But then you got to the car chase, and it did what I've loved any film that has done this, where it's kept the camera in the car and rotated round so we can see it. We saw it in it. Was it Children of Men? Yeah, creatively used it. And it's that kind of approach. And the camera just continuously moves around so you can see everything approaching from behind and it goes back so you get to see the reactions and see things going past. And it's dynamic and it puts you in, in the action directly without shaking a camera because we don't need a shaky camera to be in the action. We can have a fluid camera shot like this, which we got to see every detail. And then the trick arrows, <laughs> the multiple uses of trick arrows. Which is a real fully... throwback because I told you I, I went back and, and read the book. Yeah. Uh, there's there was a couple of uh, sequences straight out of that. I mean, this is <laughs> un, well not a, um, a truly faithful adaptation of the uh, of the book. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is pretty close, including the putty arrow, <laughs> which which was great, which was in issue three of the uh, 2012 Hawkeye series. But yeah, th this is ramping up to be up there in my favourites of the MCU. I am loving it so much and. It's it's a joy to sit. We we sit and watch it as a family each week, and it's something that we're sharing in the same way that we watch things like Doctor Who and the recently yeah, shown. Yeah, I do that um, with the boy. Yeah, Superman series. This is another one that we sit as a family to watch. So absolute belter. Some interesting uh, interesting little Easter eggs that got dropped in this one. Of course, there was the pin particle arrow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, there was the all the uh, all the trick arrows. Including uh, my favourite, where the Christmas trees uh, pull a bunch of the tracksuit uh, with with rope lines, which I thought was was very very clever. Uh, uh, the windshield with the purple putty, uh, as I've just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, the mentioning that Black Widow had killed Ronan, 
the fact that the MCU Maya is on a quest for vengeance against Ronin, who killed her father, uh, and not just yeah. a bunch of others uh, during his campaign, makes it a personal story. Uh, and the fact that she was absolutely uh, a fabulous character that used uh, um, an actor who had uh, a prosthetic limb and is in fact yep. uh, deaf as well. I thought that was that was really good, and she has so much screen presence. I thought Elkia Cox Ooh. did. I thought I can totally understand why Kevin Feige has given her her own offshoot series. Where that goes, no idea. But um, yep. did you also get the reference to the uncle? No, I didn't pick up on that. Ah, so when uh, Maya's a little girl, uh, the uncle comes in, who was the um, kind of referenced as the head of organized crime. And it sounded very much to me like Vincent D'Onferio. Now, does that mean that we are going to get the Kingpin in this one again, played by D'Onferio again? Who knows? But I thought when that character appears um, and is is referenced all the way through as the uncle, does that uh, give the intention that it is the Kingpin? We'll have to wait and see because there has also been rumours that Daredevil will appear. But I don't really believe that. would like it, but I don't believe it. So far, a great series. I'm thoroughly having a great time with it. It's just a joy of, of, of a series. Love the characters, love the setting, love the style. It's so cinematic. They spent all the money on it. I can't wait for uh, next week. And that, folks, is about it for this week's show. But of course, before we go, and we do this every single week because we like doing it. And that's our neat thing which is something that either Andy or I have enjoyed, watched, eaten, played, you name it, as long as we've had a good time with it, it's our neat thing. And as it's a season of tradition, the tradition is Andy's going to go first. So I've been dipping into um, some Bollywood films on Amazon this week. Really? In particular, the films of Shah Rukh Khan, who I absolutely adore as a Bollywood star. Films such as Don, Don 2 and The Fan, which are three of my favourite ones of his, have landed on Amazon, as well as a wealth of other films. And if you've ever put off with Bollywood because you just think, oh, the stereotype of they break into song and it's all lovey-dovey and there's waterfalls and elephants, you've, <laughs> you've missed out on an... You're missing out on an absolute treat. Don and Don 2 in particular are great action films. And yes, there are breakouts into song. And one or two of them are a bit like, that's a bit jarring. It doesn't quite fit the scene. But it does the rest of them quite stylistically. They'll be part of a street celebration going on. Or they'll be part of a nightclub scene. And so it feels natural to it. But it's the action in these films that captured me. So well shot and so stylistically directed. Shahrukh Khan is... He's the Bollywood Jackie Chan, as far as I'm concerned. He's got that charismatic presence in an action role that lends well. He can also play multiple characters really well. Um, in Don, he plays an evil underworld overlord and also a lookalike who has to replace him and is very nervy and very nerdy. Great films. But it's not just with the like the action films that I say give Bollywood a chance. If you fancy something different from the recent decades of alternative Bollywood that eschews the music and dance, then look at things like Ram Gopal Varma's Sarkar from 2005, which is a Godfather-styled tale of crime and revenge that has spawned two sequels to date. No songs, no dancers, pure drama. Or zombie horror, such as Go Go A Gone from Raj and DK. Comedy horror in the veins of Shaun of the Dead, which there's even a, a small little glimpse of someone wearing a white shirt with a red tie and a bit of red <laughs> on it as they're driving down the road to acknowledge the comparisons that will be inevitably drawn. Don't write off Bollywood. Get onto Amazon 
and start having a look through and you might find something that you can latch onto and draw you in because there's a great wealth of action, sci-fi, horrors and dramas on there that are sadly for, sadly overlooked by far too many people. This is me for the rest of the month now. I'm going to be watching at least two Bollywood films a week. And some of them are long films. You're looking at like two and a half, three hours, four hours in some cases. But I'm willing to sit through that. I'm going to go with streaming as well this week. And I'm only two episodes in of season three of Lost in Space. Now, when Lost in Space debuted, it got watched by, according to Netflix subscribers, 6.3 million. And then it had one of the strongest debuts on the platform. But since then, it kind of got a little bit, well, I don't want to use the pun lost, but it's got a bit lost. And and therefore, it's only been given a, a three-season run. However, that three seasons, when you kind of put them all together, there is a huge three-part arc for this series, which concludes with this particular season, which landed last week on Netflix. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. When you're going to do a reboot, this is how you do it. It follows the same riff of the 1960s Lost in Space series, which it was, in fact, a riff of the Swiss family Robinson. The Robinsons, a family of five, depart from Earth on a mission to lay down roots on the planet Alpha Centauri, but are thrown off course by an act of sabotage, which winds up bouncing them between habitable worlds in search of a route home. So it follows this adventure, this family that that was set up but with all clever reboots it does something entirely different it takes the original idea and, and and plays with it it's got an amazing cinematic quality i mean not just yes you can do big looking effects now on television it looks huge it looks awesome and it just works i had a few problems with um with series 1 as i as i had to find my feet with it it deviated from what I remember from Lost in Space. But once I became familiar with where it was going and saw that it was expanding upon uh, the, the Lost in Space idea, I was fully in. So I'm two episodes into series three. There is a sense that it is building to a conclusion. So if there's not going to be anything more, then we are going to be hit. And I've not watched any further yet, as I've just said, uh, with a, an ending to this particular run. It's a shame I could have sat around for another two seasons of it. It looks great. Great cast. Uh, Lost in Space. If you've not watched it, stay with it. You'll absolutely be in for a huge sci-fi treat. And that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. It's always our pleasure to deliver you a fresh baked film file every week. You can, you can almost smell it in its freshness. I don't know if that made any sense, but I'm going to go with it, Andy. I'm going with that. <laughs> you go with that. <laughs> uh, we'll be back next week with our 100th episode. Who'd have thought it? 100 shows. And we've got something a little bit special uh, because we're asking for your participation. Andy, anything? any big plans for the week? Oh, you've got a week off, haven't you? I've got a week off coming up. So uh, my big plans will be uh, spending more time editing. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get our Christmas shows ready. <laughs> And our 100th episode. It's yes. been a blast. I expect tears. Uh, expect laughter. Expect child. Expect more editing. You don't know what this man <laughs> has to go through. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining Especially us. last week. Last week with your coughing fits and snuffles. Oh, and know. Like, because you were full of flu. Man, that was some editing job that I did to get I listened back <laughs> and I thought, I sound a lot more well than I, than I remember going through it. 
Um, this week, not so bad. Just the usual, um, can't get my, uh, my words out straight. <laughs> we'll see you again next week. And you know what? We're sort of like the 7-Eleven. We're not always doing business, but we're always open. Thank you.